I'd like you to look with me in verses 9 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren." In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Father, as we open your word this morning and consider what it means that Jesus became a man, that the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us, Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts to see that clearly? For those here this morning that do not feel close to you, who are struggling in their relationship with you, or maybe um, because of the activities of their lives and other things have just uh, not cultivated a deep relationship, you can be so distant at times. You can seem like a part of the imagination or just some kind of religious ideal. The Lord Jesus, you came to this planet, not in the glory and the splendor of Almighty God, but in the form of a baby in a manger. And you walked among us in human flesh because you wanted us to know you, because you wanted us to become intimate with you. Help us to see you this morning very clearly. And by your presence and through your spirit, make yourself real in the hearts of the people here today. May we see Jesus and touch him and be touched. Open your word to us. And through these words of the writer of Hebrews, Speak to our hearts. 
in ways that are life-changing this morning. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I have been thinking this Christmas season about all the different things that are true since God became man. The wonderful truths of the Incarnation. What does it mean that Almighty God came to this earth in human flesh? And how many different ways does that impact my life? And Hebrews may seem like a strange place to go for a Christmas message, but here in the second chapter, beginning in verse 9, the writer of Hebrews outlines three more things that are true of my relationship with Jesus Christ because he became a man, because God came in human flesh. Just briefly to remind you, because there's some strange things in here, and the writer of Hebrews is... uh, He keeps talking about angels throughout the book, and this particular passage is no exception. But I want to remind you that he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who had become followers of Jesus Christ, but were now coming under persecution, and it was being very costly for them to follow Jesus. And they were considering going back, and and going back to their Jewish faith without Christ. And uh, they, were, they were struggling with that. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them to present Jesus as one so unique, so wonderful, so marvelous. In fact, the very promise of God throughout all the Old Testament that there is nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere to go back to because Jesus is the one who brings us forward into all the fulfillment of God's promises. But also, in, in Jewish life in those years uh, of the first century A.D., there were many Jewish sects, that sects, S-E-C-T-S, that were kind of hung up on uh, angelic powers and, and the worship of angels, or if not the worship, actually, the, the pursuit of uh, kind of philosophy that dealt with angelic beings, and so the writer of Hebrews is folding all of that in together to show that Jesus is supreme and superior to all other considerations, to all other ideals or philosophies, that he stands out unique and is the perfect fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. And in this passage, he says, we do see Jesus for a short while, a little lower than the angels, one who has come from the glories of heaven through the angelic realm, through the heavenly realm, and come to this planet to to be with us as a human being. And he says, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then if you look in verse 14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Remember that first Christmas night when the angels appeared to the shepherds? on the hillside outside of Bethlehem, 
You've read it so many times in Luke 2. It's so familiar to us all. And angels were keeping watch over their flocks by night, and suddenly there shone around them this great, bright, and glorious light. And all of a sudden, uh, there was an angel who appeared to them and said, uh, Behold, a Savior is born for you this day in the city of David. And this is good news, which shall be of great tidings to all men, for he shall save his people from their sins. And in the process of that, the scripture says, suddenly the, the heavens were filled with angelic hosts, singing glory to God, praise to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward men of good will. And the shepherd says, we have to go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went and they found the baby, just as he is, they had said, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough in a cattle stall. This Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. And you know, when we think about birth, we think about be children being born to life. We think about children coming into this world as the hope of the future. We have children because we want to invest ourselves in the lives of those who carry on uh, our characteristics, our bloodline, our nature, who, who carry on our hope. We invest in all children, not just our own, because we believe they are the future. We think of birth as, as coming to life. But here was a birth that was specifically for death. That's something that we don't often think about. That this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem and laid in this feeding trough was born specifically to die. That was his mission. Beyond and above all other considerations, he came to die. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, that because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he might taste death for everyone. That was his mission, to taste death for everyone. And, and through that suffering, to be crowned with glory and honor. And the writer goes on to tell us a little later in the paragraph, he says, he partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless the one who has the power of death, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I'm not trying to be morbid this morning or take you into some sort of depression. <laughs> but, you know, we have insulated ourselves pretty well in our culture from death. But in many parts of the world, death is very much up front and in your face. And infant mortality is so very high in many other countries of the world. You know, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in neonatal intensive care units to save the life of a single newborn or premature baby. But in many parts of the world, babies and children die regularly. And people die in their 30s and 40s. And an old person might be in their 60s and, and be very fortunate to have survived that long. Where in our country, the median age is approaching 80. We, we have this uh, kind of insulation that, that protects us, and yet it's still true 
that when people think about death, it holds for them a morbid kind of fear that for most of the world represents the end of everything. It's a black hole in the ground beyond which there is nothing or nothing they can be sure of. And if you think about that fear of death, it causes people to be in bondage. It puts them in various kinds of slavery. We are driven by the fear of death to experience life in, in strange ways. I was looking at a, I thought it was a commercial, um, but as I thought about it more, I mentioned it as a commercial in the first hour, and I thought about it more, it was an ad in a magazine. And what it depicted was uh, some people who were partying hardy. There was plenty of liquor involved. It had clear sexual overtones. Um, it, it showed young people, it's always young people, no offense, young people, but it's always youth. You know, we don't glorify old age. We glorify youth. Uh, people with, with nice skin and fresh young faces and not a lot of clothes, having a great time with all their senses. And something about the caption of, this is life to the fullest. And I thought, yikes. This is not life to the fullest. This is a hangover. This is an unwanted pregnancy. This is stress beyond your wildest dreams. But not tonight. <laughs> tonight, this is partying hardy. We're living life to the fullness. Why do people do that? It's not just because it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it's because it provides the awareness of being alive, and they want to feel alive, because what's the alternative? And yet the scripture says, be still and know that I am God. It's difficult for people who are afraid to die <laughs> to cut out all the stimulus and be still in the presence of God, in the quiet of their own thoughts. For example, and I'm not putting down having a good time. I'm not putting down the joy of music and the, and the blessedness of friendships and a, and a good fellowship, a good party. I'm not putting down those kinds of things. But, but people do everything in their power in this world to avoid the thoughts of what's beyond this life because they're afraid and they live in bondage even of the stillness and the quietness. Fear of that because of a fear of death. But the shepherds were told by the angels, here is one in Bethlehem whom I bring to you great news that will be good news for all people everywhere. Here is a child who was born to die. Whoa. So that you can live. So that you can live. And as Jesus told Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, he said, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. The promise of the gospel is that for those of us who know Jesus Christ, there is the guarantee that life will never end, but will only move into something better. There's the guarantee 
that when, when we come to the end of our journey, whenever that may be on this planet, we're going to take the next breath of celestial air. We're going to be in the presence of God. We're not going to lose consciousness. We're not going to lose awareness. We're not going to lose a sense of personhood. We're not going to cease to be at all. We're going to go right on as though nothing ever interrupted it. And when there is no fear of what's beyond the grave, there is true liberty to live life to the fullest. Which is exactly what Jesus said. I've come that you can have life in all of its abundance. So the first point that this writer makes in this paragraph is that this Jesus, whom we have seen for a little while lower than the angels, came to die so we could live. He came to take away the fear of death. He came to take away the sting of death so that, yes, we can live life to the hilt all the way to the very moment when God calls us home. But when that moment arrives, we don't have to be afraid because we have been released from the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus has rendered him powerless and he can't hurt us anymore. We are truly liberated. The second thing that stands out to me about this passage is that in the incarnation, Jesus has made us a family. He has made us a family. There's something very unique about this. Look at verse 11 with me. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If you read the Gospels, you will find something amazing. Jesus called the disciples, disciples. He called them followers. He called them friends. But did you know that he never once called them brothers? Until. And I checked this out because it was astounding to me. I looked up every single occurrence of the word brothers, brethren, brother, or any derivative thereof in the entire New Testament. And I found that Jesus never called his disciples his brothers until the morning of the resurrection. Do you remember what he said to Mary? Right after he identified himself to her, he said, Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. That's the first time he used that word, referring to his disciples. And do you know why? Because until the resurrection, they were not his brothers. Until the resurrection, they could not be born again by the Spirit of God, enlivened by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, raised to newness of life in him, and born into his family. The new birth, the spiritual birth, with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was something that could not happen until after the atonement. But once the atonement was made, Jesus says, go tell my brothers. We have been made brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. We have been made joint heirs with him. We are in his family. You know, it's astounding that Jesus would say to his disciples in John 15, I have called you friends. 
But it is even more astounding to me that he would say to us, you are my family. You are my brothers and sisters. I am the elder brother. And you can call my God Father. You can call him Father because he is your heavenly Father. Not just in creation, but in familial relationship, he is Papa God. And you can go to him like that. That is amazing. Isn't it amazing that, that no matter who you are or what your status in life, if you are a believing child of God, you have a family. I used to think about Ruth Ann Toussaint. She worked in the office for a number of years, and some of you know Ruth Ann. Um, she went to be home with the Lord a while back. But, you know... She, her husband died, she had no children, all of her relatives basically had passed off the scene, there were a few distant cousins, uh, uh, you know, just a couple here and there, but really no family, in the way that most people think of family. But Ruth Ann always had family, she always had sisters and brothers, she always had Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving and She always had a place to be. She was greatly loved. She had family because of Jesus Christ. And I bring that up to you this morning because no matter what your status, no matter how alone you may feel as an individual, no matter how many earthly relatives you have, if you're a child of God this morning, you have a family. You know, it's kind of old-fashioned to call each other brothers and sisters. Growing up, I grew up in the Baptist church, and we were very formal on Sunday, you know, and if you ask uh, anybody to pray, you know, it was Brother Mark, would you pray for us, you know? uh, Sister so-and-so, would you do this? Brother so-and-so, I mean, that was just kind of our formal way of doing it. But once we got out of church, I mean, you know, we dropped that brother-sister stuff because people outside in the world think you're just a little strange, but um, it's, it's kind of an old-fashioned thing. I appreciate Brother Ron because <laughs> he keeps that, that uh, passion alive to, to call brother and sister and remind us because here in the Scriptures, Jesus has called us brothers. Go tell my brothers. And he says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. How does it make you feel this morning that God is not ashamed of you to be his child. Do your kids ever embarrass you, parents? Do you, you, ever, <laughs> you ever feel ashamed that, that <laughs> I, he must have another last name? I'm sure he does. You know, do you ever feel that way? It's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to own this one right now. But God is never ashamed to call us his children. And Jesus is never ashamed to call us brother or sister. Isn't that tremendous? We really are family. And we're going to be family forever. We're going to be family eternally. We're always going to be together. I hope that doesn't depress any of you. (laughs) It's like, whoa. But we, we will always be together. 
we're always going to be, and all those idiosyncrasies that make us crazy either won't be there or they won't make us crazy. So don't worry about that. We're going to be together forever because of what Jesus has done. Faith, hope, and love, Paul says, these three remain. But the greatest, the unending, the eternal quality is love, and it will never, ever die. We never have to say goodbye, really. We're family forever with Jesus. And by the way, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's really not one of my points. But um, I want you to notice in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. If you're concerned about holiness, guess who the sanctifier is? It's not you, it's him. He has saved me, he has cleansed me, he has forgiven me. And now he sanctifies me, and all he asks me to do is just love him and hang in there. You know, and even that he gives me the strength, the strength to do. But he said, I am the sanctifier, and I'm not ashamed to call you my brother or my sister. I'll take care of you. The third thing that stands out to me in this passage is found in verse 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." And you know, in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews brings this up again, and he says it this way there. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every point, just like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that you can receive grace and mercy to help in your time of need. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. We don't have one who doesn't understand us. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about that. I've meditated on that concept for many years. And one thing I have come to the clear conclusion of, Jesus did not have to become a man in order to understand us. Because God, by definition, cannot learn. The reason he cannot learn is because he knows everything. He, he knows our thoughts. He knows our frame. The scripture says that. He knows our frame that we are but dust. David said he knows my thoughts from afar. That's a poet's way of saying he knows what I'm going to think before I think it. He knows the hairs of my head. He knows when I sit down. He knows when I get up. God knows everything there is to know about me. He knows what I'm feeling. He knows what I'm experiencing. He knows what I'm being tempted with. He fully understands me far more than I will ever understand myself. God knows my motives when I can't even begin to scratch the surface. God did not have to become a man to connect with me. So why did he do it, among other things? 
What is this point all about? He became a man and connected with us so that to save us and to identify so that we would know that he understands. So that we would know that he understands. It was necessary, for one thing, for a perfect man to pay the price for men. Jesus came as a human being and lived on this planet without sin in order to meet the criteria, the qualification to be the atonement. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the perfect man without sin. And he had to live that life and go through those years dealing with temptations and trials and all those other things to be my Savior. But also I am reminded here that because he did, I can be sure that he understands. It's one thing for God from his throne in heaven to say, I understand you. It's a marvelous thing for God to take on my flesh and my bones and my blood and come and walk in my shoes on this earth and say, I understand you. I know temptation. I've been there. I know what you feel. I've felt it. I know the trials and the suffering of life. I've experienced it. I've faced everything you will ever face. I have been... I I, I took on the garment of vulnerability when I clothed myself in human flesh And Satan did his best to bring me down. And there's nothing he will bring to you that I have not faced. And you can be sure that I do understand you. Be encouraged by that. It says here that he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Are you being tempted this morning? Are you struggling with issues? Do you have things you're battling in your life? Or, or are there problems there? You know, are, are you struggling with your faith? Are you wondering how to make ends meet? Are you trying to figure out life and relationships? Are you struggling with habits and are you facing trials like that? Jesus says, I, I can come to your aid. It's our tendency when we're faced with temptation and we're feeling beaten up and beat down. It's our tendency to want to run from God, to want to go get in a corner somewhere and kind of lick our wounds a little bit. And, and we're ashamed almost in a sense to go and say, God, I'm in trouble here. I'm failing, I'm struggling, I'm pressed on every side. But Jesus wants us to know, it's okay. I'm your brother. Do you have a brother or sister that you're close to? Just connect with that for a minute. Somebody you can can just kind of let it all hang out with. I know that's not true of every brother and sister relationship, but many have that wonderful experience. They have a brother or sister that they're just really tight with. You know, you can tell them anything. Jesus says, I'm your brother. 
and I can come to your aid. Come talk to me. I've been there. I understand. And I am now seated at Dad's right hand. (laughs) And I'm praying for you. I'm interceding for you all the time. Come to me. I will rescue you. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't that wonderful? Amazing truths of the Incarnation. That here was a baby who was born to die. Every other child is born for life. But here was one who was born to die so that we would never have to die again. Here was one who was born and died and rose again to make us a family so that we would never be alone and always be members of the family of God forever. Here was one who walked in our shoes, felt our feelings, experienced our difficulties, suffered our sufferings, and said, I understand you, and I love you, and I will come to your aid if you will call out to me. All because Jesus was willing to take on the garment of human flesh. I remind you, I I was reading John MacArthur on this passage, and words that I've read from many other Bible teachers and commentaries, commentators. Many people say, well, Jesus never sinned. How could he understand me? And the answer to that is, every time you sin, you cut short the full power of temptation that Satan can bring. Unless you have faced every temptation with success, you have no idea how tough it can get. Jesus knows how tough it can get. He's faced the best Satan has to give. The most power. The most horrendous attack. Jesus has suffered greater intensity in every case. And when he comes to our aid, he brings that fortitude to face the temptation with the same grace and power that he provides, that he dealt with it. He understands. And he can take you through successfully. He alone knows how tough it can get, and he can bring you through safely. Here is one who understands. Marvelous truths. Because Jesus became a man. Father, thank you this morning for your great love for us. Thank you for the the wonderful message that the angels announced. For today in the city of Bethlehem is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the promised Messiah. Eternal Son of God, thank you that you took on human flesh and We called your name Jesus, Yeshua, because you would save your people from their sin. The angels called you Emmanuel, God with us. And we beheld your glory, you who were made for a little while lower than the angels. We beheld your glory as of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And we want to thank you this morning. 
that you have done this for us. You've taken away the sting of death and told us we can live forever. You've taken away the loneliness and solitude and given us a family in which you are our elder brother. And Almighty God is our Heavenly Father. And you have encouraged us by walking in our shoes and winning the battle and inviting us to walk with you. The great warrior, the mighty conqueror, Jesus, our hero, we can follow in your steps and you will lead the way and we will walk in glorious victory because you are the sanctifier. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We adore you. We bow before you. We give you glory. You are worthy to be praised. Hallowed be your name. Amen.